I'm so excited to welcome you to Season 3 of Career Resilience. My name is Jan Daniluk. I'm a Senior Human Resources Consultant at Ford Keast, a progressive accounting firm in London, Ontario, Canada. Each week, I get to talk with people about their career path and their career journey, and maybe we can all learn from each other how to be a little bit more resilient in the challenging world of work. Please check out my website, career-resilience.com, where you'll find season one and season two, and now season three. Welcome. Love what you do and do what you love. The best career advice I've received, follow the fun. Those opportunities will just organically present themselves. You know, establish those connections and maintain those connections. Acceptance just means accepting what is. I don't think we should just put ourselves in a box. At the end of the day, it was always me that I said, I'm not doing good enough right now. I want it to always be, you know, movie night on Friday night. My guest today is Dr. Rob Austin, and I just want to introduce you, Rob. You're a professor of information systems at Ivy School of Business, um, also affiliated faculty member at Harvard's Medical School. I have that you chaired the executive program for chief information officers at Harvard. And of course, I know that you've got uh, a lot of industry experience as well as academia. So is there anything you'd like to add to that? Because I know your CV is as long as my arm and, and, and other people with arms longer than me. Is there anything you want to add? No, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I've I've been involved in one way or another in information technology and digital technology uh, for quite a while. Uh, I've worked in big companies uh, in that connection, and I've also worked uh, in startup settings. Um, I did once work for a gentleman named Eric Schmidt, uh, who went on to become the, he was at the time the CEO of Novell, but he went on to become the CEO and chairman of Alphabet slash Google. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was, I learned a lot from him, but uh, yeah, and the uh, the program you talked about at Harvard uh, has given me an opportunity to connect with people in uh, you know in a lot of places who are uh, very involved in uh, digital technology and its impacts on business. So um, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting world these days. It sure is. Uh, okay. So this is actually a hat trick for you because you've been on two other times. And uh, the first one, we talked about neurodiversity, which was fascinating and uh, really enjoyed that conversation. And the second one was our age of super transparency and the challenges and and positives that 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 brings to us. So Mm -hmm. so I'm interested to now move on to information systems and information technology. Now, is that the same thing? Are those two phrases interchangeable, information systems and information technology? So, um, you know, I'd say kind of not quite, but one of the things that you see happening there is over time, the sort of in vogue um, terminology shifts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Technology is an area that is sometimes subject to bandwagons and hype and trends. And so... You know, there's a rough equivalence between what we would have called, 
in the 60s, data processing. Uh, maybe a little later, it would have become management information systems or MIS. Uh, later, information systems. Um, I think people made it information technology to make it seem a little more modern. And now these days, I think people would would use the word digital. They would yeah. say it's digital technology. And I think it's a little broader in that formulation. One of the observations that uh, I have heard made is that, you know, the, the world of IT, the world of MIS used to be mostly about the, you know, the IT department, the, yes. the, uh, the IS department in companies. But uh, there's an interesting statistic from um, MIT, from their Center for Information Systems Research. See, they have the name for the problem too. But uh, they say that, uh, I believe the statistic is only 29% of spending on digital technology is happening now inside the IT department. Uh, it's happening much more often outside in places like research and development, marketing, and um, other, other places within the firm. So digital has kind of outgrown the IT department. Mm -hmm. That's right. When you think of marketing, Surely that is all about digital, really, or the biggest slice of it is about digital. Yeah, no, I think what I like to say, and, you know, we have a uh, uh, maybe a small advertisement here, but we have a program at Ivy, a, manage, a master's of science program in what we call digital management, and it's in its third year. And I think it's kind of unlike uh, any other program anywhere else in that we've really embraced the breadth of digital. And... Uh, what I mean by that, well, the way I usually say it, and it's related to what you just asked, the um, I think I like to say digital adds uh, at least another chapter, maybe several new chapters to pretty much every di business discipline. So it's changed strategy. Uh, marketing is now a matter of, you know, there's inbound marketing, there's digital marketing, there's all the metrics, all the click through, mm -hmm. all, all the, um, you know, the Google ads and, and all of that has become you know, really an essential part of marketing. Uh, finance, uh, we've had developments like blockchain, like uh, high-frequency trading. Uh, there's, um, you know, if you name it, wherever you see a traditional business discipline, there's new stuff to talk about now that's related to digitalization. Yeah. Um, certainly, I, I know... Um... Search engine optimization is huge. SEO, we're constantly talking about that and how we can optimize SEO and so on, which of course, yeah, that's digital, but I would not have thought of it in the information systems area because I think that I sort of think of the IT area, right? So. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's the distinction that we're talking about here, I think, is, you know, historically, when people think about IT or IS or MIS, it's mostly been about cost efficiencies, cost savings, automation, right? Yeah. Uh, but now we, we live in this world of the Internet and, um, you know, one of, and, you know, the World Wide Web. And, um, you know, you mentioned search engine optimization. Uh, if we think about marketing, uh, you know, historically, uh, marketing was, um, you know, was non-digital. It was billboards and TV ads and so forth. Uh, and it was what people call outbound, meaning uh, you were tr sending your messages out to people who uh, weren't necessarily asking for it, right? So they were, 
Uh, often you were, you know, interrupting people at dinner or interrupting people's TV shows and trying to get a certain amount of attention from them. But, um, you know, one of the things that digital has made possible is now what's called inbound marketing. And inbound marketing uh, describes the idea that uh, we create content uh, and people want the content. So, I mean, a good example would be what you've seen happening on the web with uh, food sites. So people come to us for recipes. And when we when we market to them in that context, they're already there looking for things related to what we want to try to convince them to, to buy. So, right. you know, if you, have a, if you have a website that's, you know, an authoritative reviewer of cameras, for example, somebody shows up and you market cameras to them, well, you've got someone there who you're not interrupting. You're not interrupting their dinner. You're not interrupting yes. their TV. They're there specifically for what you want them for. And that's become, uh, search engine optimization is a very important part of that because one of the problems you have to solve is how do you get them to your site? Yeah. Uh, so that's, it's all part of the same picture, if you like. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I follow various influencers like many of us do. And um, of course, uh, I follow a lot of British influencers who have gone completely silent over the last week because of the period of mourning for the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And so it was like losing my fix. Oh, and, no. And then what I started thinking is, you know, maybe I should unsubscribe because I'm so into going and seeing these influencers and what they have to say. And it's so true, Rob. I go to them. I go to them and I, oh, there's more. There's more content. Yay. Uh, so it was an interesting blank for that week. No, it's uh, it's true. And, you know, one of the biggest companies, biggest new companies in that space is a Canadian company. It's called Viral Nation. Uh, it was founded by a, a guy named Joe Gagliese. And uh, what they figured out, you know, there were lots of companies and, and agencies that managed the media affairs in the um, you know, the sort of entertainment affairs of pro athletes and, you know, kind of other famous people. But what they were quick to realize is that there was kind of a new category of famous people that were famous on YouTube or famous on TikTok or, or whatever. And, um, you know, they've um, they've really made a, a big business out of that. They manage the influencers. They also help the companies craft campaigns that are based on uh, input from influencers and they also have software that they uh, that they sell uh, to help companies manage their influencer based marketing programs so you know, none of this existed 10 15 years ago right no and uh, I, I think this is sort of going veering into age of super transparency maybe too I'm not just sure but I have a friend whose business is being the the executive that she represents is too busy to be on, on all these, you know, uh, social media sites. So she's him on these sites. And I think, well, then can you trust anything? <laughs> no, that is interesting. Uh, I had not heard, I haven't heard of that, that people are actually impersonating famous people kind of, but I mean, that they're not, not. You're not impersonating. Not, they but, yeah, yeah. They don't mean, they, uh, I don't mean to imply that, they're impersonating unwelcomely, but it sounds like this is uh, a way that people are, um, you know, managing their scarcity of time. Yes. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So that was very interesting to me. 
So for you, information systems and so on, where where did you come to it and, and why in your career? So I think, you know, like we, we had a conversation, I think, way back um, where I talked about how a lot of things that I think have happened in my career have been serendipitous, mm-hmm. right? That they, and I think this might be another one. Uh, so when I was graduating from undergraduate school, um, I was an engineer, but I was also uh, a, a, an English literature major with a lot of in, a big interest in theater. And so I tried to come up with a, we had to come up with a senior project as we were graduating uh, in the engineering program. And I tried to combine my two interests. Uh, and what I decided to try to build was a computer controlled theater lighting system. Uh, something that would allow uh, lighting designers to do more complex effects than they could do with the manual sliders and so forth. And so uh, I teamed up with a colleague who was an electrical engineer and I was a mechanical engineer. Uh, It wasn't a very mechanical engineering kind of thing uh, because it was mostly electrical. We were doing a little bit of, we we did uh, play around with computers and take the backs off of them and build circuit boards to make them work all stuff that you wouldn't have to do anymore because it's all off the shelf now. But, but I, uh, my role was to write the software. And so I wrote a uh, software system to control a theater, uh, you know, a theater uh, or computer controlled theater lighting system and became interested in information technology. Um, I might've mentioned last time when I left my undergraduate program, I went to study playwriting at the University of Texas. And um, while I was there, I was a very, very poor graduate student. I mean, poor wealthily. Yeah, not, not I mean, I was pretty good. I was good at my grades, but I had uh, zero money. Uh, I was eating at 39 cent hamburger and three nights a week, I was eating English muffins, with, uh, pizza whiz and American cheese because I just had I, I discovered the scholarship they gave me did not come close to covering what I needed. So I went looking for a job and settled on to a, um, I was a computer administrator for a um, uh, regional headquarters of a sort of a medium-sized nonprofit organization. Uh, and so once again, uh, I had a job in the computer industry. They couldn't, they couldn't, um, or computer related, they couldn't uh, afford a real computer person. Um, I was kind of in between, you know, like I, I thought what they would pay me was great. And, uh, I knew enough about computers, I guess, to, to satisfy them. And of course it was an opportunity to learn some more. And, um, and then, you know, eventually I went to work for Ford and the computer, uh, it was the, the information technology part of Ford that, that hired me. And at at that point I was pretty, pretty committed to that career path. Yeah. I, I have friends who started out serendipitously into IS and so on. And they, they have said to me, you know, it was a question of fake it till you make it. It wasn't, it wasn't school book learning. It was simply, there was an interest there. There was an ability there. And so it just, you know what, I can do this. So what does a professor of information systems teach and who do you teach it to? So at a business school, we teach it, you know, at a business school like Ivy, we teach it to everybody. So it is part of our core curriculum at Ivy. Uh, There are certain required courses 
that mm -hmm. all of our students take. And, you know, that would include things like uh, financial fundamentals and strategy and marketing and, you know, all the sort of classic business disciplines. Okay. But we also have a core course called Leveraging Information Technology. And, you know, the logic is um, yeah. digitalization is all woven through the fabric of today's organizations. Yes. And our general management students, even if they don't aspire to move into a technical career path, most of them don't. Some of them do. But even if they don't, um, they need to know. They need to know about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to switch gears for a second and talk about companies in general and overall, and and gather your opinion from you know uh, education and, and just from the the various uh, roles that you've held and all your knowledge. What do you think, Rob, makes a company successful? Ooh, that's a really big question. Um, uh, but I would say, you know, I would say uh, what really differentiates successful companies over the long haul uh, is sort of a devotion to a core set of values uh, and the sort of strength of the culture. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, you know, I think a lot of the capabilities that really differentiate companies are not visible, say, on the balance sheet, yeah. right? They're not visible in the financial statements. Uh, I do think that companies, some companies underestimate the degree to which their success depends in the long term on less visible uh, assets, if you like. And I'm talking about things like know-how that resides within companies. Um, it's gotten kind of fashionable to try to try to manage everything by the numbers and and so forth. But I think one of the problems with that is that it does not take sufficient account of these. I, I don't know if they're invisible assets, but they're less visible assets. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about invisible assets, you're talking about know-how. Um, you're talking about what collegiality, um, all these, the, the people part of things. The people part of things is a huge part of it. And, you know, the way you see some executives squander that is when they think of people as just another fungible resource mm -hmm. and they, um, you know, they may be tempted to outsource uh, to realize a short term and fairly ephemeral cost reduction, but they may liquidate in the process a lot of employee know-how. Um, but it's not just that. Uh, there's, um, you know, there's other things like, um, uh, like reputation, like resilience, right? One of the things that makes me think about this these days is I'm sure you've, you've read and all everyone who might listen to this has read and experienced we're having a lot of failures of operational processes after since the pandemic, right? Yeah. So the airports don't work very well. The airlines don't work very well. Supply chains are not working well. We can't get baby formula, you know, those kinds of things. And I would argue that that is the result of leadership that has squandered resilience, right? So they've, they've, they've tightened, tighten things down so tight that they cannot absorb shocks anymore. And it was good for the short term when there were no shocks underway. Yeah. Uh, and it made their, you know, financial ratios look really good. 
But now that, um, you know, we've had a jolt from the pandemic, from the war in Ukraine, um, we're realizing that they, they've actually paid something for those improvements, right? They've, they've paid something in the form of their company's capabilities. So, uh, and, you know, the other thing is, uh, the people dimension is, uh, you know, you know this, uh, this is kind of your area. They can't get, pe- they can't get people back, Right. That they're saying, please, please come back. We have jobs for you now. Uh, and people are saying, no, no thanks, right? Uh, <laughs> so certainly not on the old terms. Am I going to come back to you, right? Yeah, um, which is why compensation and salaries are escalating like mad because people are being bought back, not brought back, but bought back. Yeah, and I think coming back too, when you're bought back, not brought back, you come back a, a, quite a bit more transactional, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is what they talk what they talk about. I think when people say talk about quiet quitting, and mm-hmm. you know that that somehow in the process of leading, you know, based mostly on numbers, we've gotten transactional in a way that costs us things like, um, you know, like uh, the capabilities that we had from you know, employees really identifying with what the company was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some spectacular examples of it. Uh, I would say Boeing has a very serious problem this way. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, General Electric, we're seeing them fall apart uh, after, you know, two or three decades of treating employees like, you know, rank them and yank them. I sometimes wonder, do you think that businesses look at the long game uh, or is it mostly, you know, let's just get through this year? That's that's at the heart of the problem, I think, is that there's too many, you know, there's too much emphasis on the short game. Yeah. And I think it manifests in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, there are there are speculative investors that are that mostly care about the short yeah. short game. Uh, I worry sometimes that some bonuses, some executives that are bonused on financial metrics uh, are, you know, slide. I don't think they necessarily start out obsessed with the short gain, but they end up obsessed with the short gain. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, you know, I don't actually think it's something we can solve completely with incentives. Uh, You know, one of the things people will argue is, you know, if we could stretch out the incentives over time so that, you know, if we could claw back some of the gains, if things go badly after they leave or, but I honestly don't think it's about incentives. It's about core values. It's about intrinsic motivation, not extrinsic motivation. Let's move back to um, information system. Can you just speak to that in terms of where we are and where you think we're going? Sure. So I think we're in a place where, you know, we've been integrating our uh, business processes into uh, technologically automated systems for decades now, right? And um, consequently, it's really not very easy anymore to separate business operations from the technology. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot of consequences that we see uh, happening in the news sometimes where a computer system will knock out uh, an airline for a day and a half or, um, you know, there's there's a lot of versions of this. 
One of the things it means is that a lot of the business logic in our companies are is now kind of hard coded, or it's not necessarily hard coded because it could be in software, but it's it's less visible than it used to be. You know, there's a lot of know-how, knowledge, process, uh, and so forth from our companies. It's embedded in technological systems now. And, you know, there's there's benefits, huge benefits from that, but there's also some risk um, that we see, you know, when we see major failures. But I would say that's old school. That's old school to IT. That's, you know, we automated stuff to make it more efficient, uh, to maybe make it more reliable mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. I think new school, which, you know, you tend to use digital technology for, is about expanded possibilities on the top line, right? So it's about reaching customers in new ways or delivering new services to customers. Um, it's also about uh, new business models. And uh, I'd say that's, you know, I said there was a new chapter in every business discipline. The new chapter in strategy is that we have new business models now that are have not been very common in the past, but are extremely common and getting more common. And we don't know how to think about them. Uh, And what I'm talking about specifically is the business models of companies we call tech platforms. So Google, Amazon, Apple, um, they are making money and operating in ways that most companies have not historically. They're platform companies, not what I call pipeline companies, Pipeline companies take in raw materials, add value, and then sell them on into a market. Platform companies sometimes just connect people who want to transact. Um, Uber is a platform company. Uh, It doesn't actually make anything. It just connects drivers and riders. Hmm. Um, But these platform companies are incredibly valuable, and some of them are incredibly profitable. Doesn't information systems, therefore, have the keys to the kingdom? Um. Yeah, they should. They should. Well, I used to give a talk to IT professors, or not IT professors, IT professionals, um, called, uh, you know, uh, why IT leaders need a n- new trick, right? It was sort of a riff on the, it was something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, dogs, the, this old dog needs a new trick, right? Yeah. And, and the thrust of the talk was to say, uh, everything's about digital now. Everything's about digital now, but our IT managers are focused like this. And, you know, on, on a narrow piece of that picture, and most of it was about cost reduction. And it was understandable in a way. The way I used to put it is we were saying vision, vision, strategy, strategy, vision. Yes. And they were looking at us and going, hunt, kill, eat, <laughs> right? They were saying, don't talk to me about vision. I got to reduce cost or I'm out of a job, right? The history of of hype around technology and it's important to business kind of goes up and then crashes and then goes up and then crashes and then goes up and then crashes. And so, um, you know, I think it's led people who are in the profession to have sort of a, uh, you know, batten down the hatches kind of a mindset. Uh, They're reluctant to get too far up the uh, the upslope because they know that you know like a roller coaster the uh, the down slope is coming um, but I think that's unfortunate because uh, you know it causes them to miss some of the really transformational things that may be happening yeah um, 
Don't, don't you think, Rob, that um, a lot of budgets for information systems are just so big and have to be so big that um, CEOs look at it and just rear back in fear of spending that kind of money for progress that might be a little bit intangible. Yeah, and I think I think you're right about that. I also think that you know if you look at uh, the amount that we spend maintaining mm -hmm. that infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, that's also uh, you know worry worrisome. One of the kinds of analyses that I've proposed to companies and led them through from time to time is what we call compete versus qualifier analysis. And what we do is we go through their portfolio of IT projects and we say, how many of these are just what we call qualifiers, meaning they're required to stay in business, but they don't really give us any edge over our competitors. A compete is something that does give us an edge over our competitors. And so we go through the portfolio and we categorize and we classify, they categorize and they classify, this is a compete, this is a, this is a qualifier and so forth. And then we add up the amount of cost that's being absorbed by competes and qualifiers and we compare them and we decide whether that's reasonable. No. And in most companies that have been around for a while, they're, the, the amount going into qualifiers is much, much bigger than the amount going into com competes. And some of that is just a signal of the age of the IT infrastructure, right? Um, but it's not ideal, right? I mean, it's a, a better, you know, a good thing to do would be as if we could figure out how to reduce the cost basis for that commodity stuff and then use the windfall to actually invest in some more competitive uh, yeah. systems. I wanted to ask you, what do you think is sort of the biggest learning or um, that our, our viewers or listeners should take away from the from our kind of wide ranging discussion. So I think you know one of the big things that people should take away, and it, it we didn't go really deep into it, but I did mention these new business models that di digitalization is creating or making possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I've been doing quite a lot lately, and I've been doing it with, you know, executives from big banks and uh, um, various uh, other kinds of companies, but also my 22-year-olds, right, my Master of Science in Digital Management students, is talking to them about what we call, colloquially, we call it the superpowers of these uh, platform business models. And um, especially the big, broad ones. And, you know, you see this concern in the news, right, that uh, the Justice Department of the U.S. is suing Google. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, when she ran for president last time, her big part of her platform was uh, taking the tech technology companies apart, right, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and so forth. Uh, but what, what we, uh, you know, what we do when we dig into this is um, – I, I believe what I say to the, the, the folks that we're, we're talking about this with is, you know, if you look at the news, you might think that people think these companies have superpowers. But what I say is, well, they kind of do. Right. And, and then we dig into why. And it has to do with what are called network effects, that their value increases when they can increase the size of their network and it increases faster 
then they add to their network, which means that the bigger they get, the harder it is to catch them, right? For any competitor to catch up with them. So they're not monopolists in the strict sense because monopolists are companies that abuse their dominance of a market to increase prices unfairly on customers. But what Google would point out if you call them a monopolist is that they don't charge consumers anything for their services, right? Uh, the maps, uh, search, uh, Google Docs, uh, Google Drive, it's all free to, to consumers. And it's because they're trying to build their network as big as possible because they can monetize the data. And this monetize the data thing, um, just to say it uh, kind of diplomatically, it's a much bigger deal than most managers think it is. And, um, you know, one of the things I see in when we do executive education is there's a layer of executives, not at the top of the company, but a, a bit below, and they see it. They see the threat, but their bosses don't see the threat and, uh, and don't even believe in it. So we just had a program uh, oh, not well, exactly a week ago because today is no, today's Wednesday, so a little over a week ago is Monday and Tuesday with the top three executives, top four executives of a day of, of a European bank, and um, they won't hear it that the tech platforms are coming into financial services, and I think they're wrong, <laughs> you know. Isn't it pretty and, obvious they are? Well, you would think so, but you know. <laughs> What they keep saying is things like, well, there's no, you know, they can't make money. They can't make money in that. And what they're looking at is Google or, you know, I mean, they're looking at companies doing things like what Google is doing, offering services for free. And they're saying, how do you make money off of offering services for free? And what they're forgetting is that they're, make, they're not making money over here, but they're making a ton of money over there, right, wow. from having the network of free services over here. And, you know, I mean, you know, all you got to do is look at Google's financials. Um, you know, profit, their return on sales is, you know, are in the vicinity of 30%. They are immensely profitable. And that's after they put away more for research and development than any traditional firm can afford to. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I guess I would say is if you haven't, figured this out. If you're a manager today and you still think the game is the same, uh, you should figure out this platform thing. Uh, there's some good books. Uh, there's a book called The Business of Platforms wow. that I um, that I recommend. It's by uh, Cusimano, Yaffe, and I think Gower. I can't remember the third, the last author, but they're um, an MIT professor, a Harvard professor, and um, I'm not sure of the affiliation of the third author. But um, very good book. And, um, you know, it's kind of your head should explode stuff. Yes. Yeah. Some people are just like, nah, it's the same old stuff. Business never changes. But business has changed. Yeah. Business is because of digitalization. And, you know, people who don't get on board with that, I think are going to have problems. Yeah. Maybe be left behind. But I'll tell you, Rob, it is fascinating to see where it's all going. It really yeah, is fascinating, frightening, yeah, uh, exciting. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. It'd be fun to be one of my 22 year olds in my digital management program these days because the world is just gonna be amazing during their career. Yeah, well, 
and amazing during your career and amazing during the industrial revolutions career and so on and so forth. That, is, that is how we're blessed. Um, <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I, I, I love chatting with you and, and learning from you. So thank you very much. Sure thing. Well, thank you for having me. It's always, uh, it's always a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoy it. So to our viewers and listeners, thank you for joining Rob and me. And I hope you will go back and listen to the other two episodes that we did together in, in, in season two. Um, one about, as we said at the beginning, uh, neurodiversity, which is really fascinating. And one about the, the age of super transparency, which is self-explanatory when you, when you hear that phrase. If you're a listener, catch me on my podcast, wherever you get your podcast. If you're a viewer, catch us on YouTube. And thank you so much. And until we meet again. Mm-hmm.